Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we are interviewing Bacola Oinloye, PhD researcher at the Open University studying parental perceptions of formal education in Nigeria. Hi Bacola, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Cassian and Natasha. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Pleasure. So tell us, Bacola, how did you come to be researching parental perceptions of education? Um, thanks for that question. My research is actually driven from practice. So I worked in international development for a number of years and I was a research monitoring and evaluation specialist or manager for a large large internationally funded education programs. And through some of these programs, it was evident that we were neglecting a critical stakeholder within the education sector. We were implementing teacher training programs. There were some marginal interventions for parents, but within the context that we were intervening, it was evident that there were certain barriers to student participation in schooling. And I was quite intrigued in trying to uncover what those barriers might be. And I suspect that it might be around perspectives and attitudes towards education. And particularly because we were intervening within basic education and because of the importance of parents to children's basic education participation, I thought it was important to try to explore parents' perspectives around education. So tell us about your your study. How, How are you going about your research? Well, my research is a qualitative study and it's drawing primarily on ethnographic methods Um, and ethnography requires that you engage with participants in their everyday settings so what they call their naturalistic settings so you interact and you engage with participants in their day-to-day everyday settings and my day-to-day everyday settings are in rural west africa in north central nigeria so i explored my research questions in two rural communities. I was interested in small communities which had a public primary school within which I could explore the views of parents, but that I could also speak with the teachers of the children of those parents within the schools. By public, you, that, that's the state-run primary school. So in the UK, we, we have this annoying thing of using public schools to mean private schools. And yeah, so, so you're looking at two communities, both had state provision for primary school. That's right. Is this the only provision in the, in the area in terms of formal schooling? So there are a number of different provisions. Both communities were Muslim communities. So there are religious Arabic schools. There are also private schools primarily low-cost primary schools. So in one of the communities, there was, in addition to the public primary school, a low-cost private primary school, which had been started by one of the members of the community, who actually was also one of the core participants of the research. So you said that you got in alongside the, the community. What sort of things did you do with the community to sort of get more information from them? So in terms of my research methods, um, I use 
sort of the typical ethnographic methods, so interviews and participant observations. However, I also use a different type of interview called the photo elicitation interview, which is an interview where you essentially use a photo to try to elicit uh, perspectives from participants during the interview. So the interviews um, were okay. They It was interesting because the methods that I sort of planned in my head didn't actually work out the way that I was expecting them to in the field. So my individual interviews where I expected participants to, to elicit their own perspectives to me in a one-on-one -on -one setting turned out to be communal interviews where <laughs> anybody who was walking by who felt that they had a perspective, um, you know, felt that they wanted to interject and contribute because this was a topic that was pertinent to everybody. Everybody had a child who was in school or out of school, as the case may be. And I think I was also um, an object of curiosity. These weren't communities where research had necessarily been done in this way before. So I was I was curious and then my research topic was curious and everybody wanted to, to have a perspective. Um, so my individual interviews, you know, turned out to be communal interviews and I was uh, I had to adjust my own thinking to accept that that was a norm within these contexts and not see it as a failure um, and then in terms of the photo elicitation interviews that also didn't quite work or at least it worked in a different way so my my parent participants the core participants were older parents some of them were grandparents and I used tablets to try to take the photographs and then get them to elicit their perspectives based on those photographs. And um, one of my participants, as soon as I brought out the tablet and I asked her to tell me what photograph she wanted me to take or that she could take, I could teach her how to take it. She just all of a sudden launched backwards in fear. She was afraid of the gadget. So there was a technological aversion, it appeared, with my participants. Um, and then the other interesting thing that emerged with the photo elicitation interviews was how this in a way contrasted with the way that participants themselves interacted. So these were oral cultures, these were rural oral cultures as as is uh, you know many African cultures. So for participants it was difficult for me to explain or I struggled to explain why they needed to um, speak to a photograph. So the way that I tried to do this was I'd already held a number of interviews with participants and the idea was that I would now ask them, based on what you've already told me, um, what kind of photograph should I take or can you take that can further sort of capture what you've already told me? And they looked at me and said, well, but we've already told you. What, <laughs> what do you need a photograph to to say again. So that was that was quite interesting. And um, I had to pivot a little bit. And um, what I did was I want somebody did sort of had, a, had an idea of what I was talking about. So what I did was with the other parents, I now use an example of what somebody else had taking. And then they ended up all taking similar photographs. <laughs> so it worked in an interesting way. <laughs> I, I really love the um, the flexibility that you showed um, in, in both of those things. I, the phrase communal interviewing is just brilliant. I love it. Um, and, and I suppose for me, it just in terms of practice generally, when we work with different people, it just shows how we have to be flexible and not be imposing our way of doing things. And I, and I think they are two great examples of that. So, so thank you. Yeah. So you interviewed parents and you interviewed the children as well? Yes. Yeah, so I interviewed parents. So Parents were selected with the help of the teachers because 
the entry point into the communities was the school. And with the help of the head teachers, we selected a few core parents. And then the idea was to um, speak also with the children of those parents and then to also speak with the teachers of those children. So to get this sort of holistic perspective from teachers, the children and the parents themselves. So what are your main findings from from the research? I think the main findings from the research, I mean, I'm just getting into the findings and trying to sort of make sense of them and write them up. But what is evident is that there are a variety of perspectives. So my main research topic is around schooling. So I would lead with questions like what what prompted you to send your child to school or what do you think about schooling? And schooling in the local language or school um, is translatable in the local language, a house of books or a house of learning. So I would typically ask them, translating to the local language, why are you sending your child to the house of books? And then they would respond to learn learning. And then I would follow up with, so what does learning mean to you? So that sort of opened up a can of worms and they began to talk about different forms of learning that were not limited to schooling. So, you know, as parents, you know, you want to teach your child certain values and certain morals within the home before they go to school. So that was one type of learning, sort of home learning that parents spoke about. So because these were Muslim communities, parents also sent their children to Arabic schools because they wanted to instill certain Arabic uh, values and, you know, certain tenets and practices of the Muslim faith in their children. So that was another type of learning that children did. Um, And then because these were traditional sort of rural communities and parents were still connected to some of these rural practices and linked to the outcomes of schooling that parents observed in their environment, they wanted their children to learn certain skills. So they also, because these were younger children, they were preparing them anyways to be enrolled in informal apprenticeships. So it was evident within the environment that there were various forms of learning that were not limited to schooling. You said you interviewed teachers as well, and there was this multiplicity of different perspectives on what learning was. Was there a meeting of minds between what the parents thought and what the teachers thought, or was there a conflict in those expectations? Absolutely. I mean, I think because teachers themselves were, they weren't from the specific communities. The majority of them were commuting from different communities, um, sometimes from the main town, but these were also Muslim teachers. So they had similar perspectives in terms of sort of the breadth of learning. I mean, they didn't um, elucidate them in a sort of sophisticated way parents did by sort of segmenting them into home learning and Arabic learning um, and school learning and informal apprenticeship learning. But within the conversations with, with teachers, it was evident that they also subscribed to these different forms of learning because they were also cultural agents in their environment. What were the children's perceptions of, of that? Well, the children's perspectives were quite similar to their parents as well. Um, they also believed in their need to uh, learn how to practice their faith. So they also subscribed to the Arabic schooling. They believed in formal schooling to the extent to which, you know, the, sort of the massification of schooling and the popularity of formal schooling requires in a way that everybody believes in school. I mean, parents had a certain phrase that they were using that was um, our eyes have opened. So our eyes have opened to schooling. We can no longer not believe in schooling, even if our interest in schooling might be, might not be 
complete or absolute, but we can no longer not believe in it. So children also subscribe to that. And they were quite keen about informal apprenticeships. I mean, some of them spoke excitedly about the processes with which they were now embarking on to begin to think about the kinds of apprenticeships they might they might decide to enroll in or they might tell their parents that they were interested in. And in terms of the children's perspectives, this was driven by the experiences of their siblings. So most of them had siblings who had gone to school, who had done secondary school and who had done some level of post-secondary school, who were sitting at home without jobs. And to them, they were questioning, what is the point of going to school when we've gone to school and the outcome of schooling is unemployment? And these, some of these were elder siblings who hadn't learned any sort of apprenticeship. So they had no other skill with which to, to earn a livelihood. So these children were quite, I think, interested and excited about the possibility of adding the informal apprenticeships to, to their schooling. So was there a uniformity in the parents and the older siblings' perceptions? And, and did that affect how they enabled the schooling? Well, I didn't interview the older siblings, but the uniformity or sort of the synergy was around parents using, if you permit that word, to the, the older siblings to support schooling. So again, because these were older parents, these were rural schooling, uh, rural older parents, they had really limited experiences of schooling. Um, some of them were grandparents. So most of them had not actually gone to school. So they talked about their own inabilities in, in, in being able to support the, their children because they weren't in the classroom. They had no experience in the classroom. They themselves hadn't learned to be literate or numerate. But because they had elder children in the household, they often directed those elder children to support the children's learning. So things like helping them to check the homework of the children and then reporting back to the ch to the parents to say, well, this child is performing well or this child is not performing well. And then the parent will act on that. And the parent's next action would be to now go to the school and talk to the teacher to provide some added support for the child or to provide some added monitoring for the child. A lot of our teachers are very well aware that one of the biggest indicators of how well children will perform in their class is actually the involvement of the parents in that learning and in the home learning side of things and the communities you were looking at it sounds like even though the old the adult generation hadn't had the similar experience of schooling as they now want for their children they were quite actively involved in that process but at the same time they're putting an awful lot of other stuff on their plate it sounds like there's quite a lot of different demands in terms of learning going alongside schooling. So how was yeah. all of that being managed? It wasn't being managed very well, to be quite honest. It was difficult, as you can imagine. I mean, it was difficult for the children. And I think it was difficult for the parents as well. Um, some children had to go to Arabic schooling in the morning as well as in the afternoon. Um, those are the ones who were whose parents were quite dedicated and enforced that. But then they would go to Arabic schooling in the morning, say they wake up at 6 a.m., um, they do their chores, they do some prayers in the morning, they go to Arabic school at 7 a.m., they return home maybe at 8 a.m school begins at 8.30 a.m. School ends at 1.30 or 2 p.m., depending on how, how much they chill after school and play around. Um, and some Arabic schools begin at 2 p.m. and end at 4 p.m. Others begin at 3 p.m. and end at 5 p.m. And then after the Arabic schooling, sometimes children have um, 
chores to do or they, they, they perform economic activities. So there were children who were hawking, for example, um, or they might go to the farm. And then by the time they return from all of that, it's 7 or 8 p.m., that's when they remember that they have homework. Um, but then it's dark and there's no electricity, so they might take a torch and try to do the homework outside on the porch. But it's difficult because they're tired and they just want to eat or they just want to chill, you know, and sort of chill and their siblings and then go to sleep. So there's really no time for homework because there's no time at home to do the work that teachers have assigned. Um, so sometimes they do scramble to do it in the evenings, but, you know, the, the extent to which they're able to do it is called into question. And some of my conversations with teachers reveal that children actually mostly did their homework in the morning in the classroom. So when they come and they arrive at school in the morning, that's when they all scramble in their groups and try to do the homework or copy off of each other. And I was curious about this because I asked teachers, well, you know, these children are too busy. <laughs> Their lives are incredibly busy and they're not going to be able to do the homework. So why do you continue to assign homework that they will not be able to do? And the teacher said, well, because that's the evidence for parents that were actually doing any work in school. So for teachers, the assignment of homework was evidence for parents, really, not necessarily because they felt that the children were going to do it because they knew the children wouldn't do it. I, mean, I feel for the children caught up in that being <laughs> so they're assigned the homework not because it's homework that they need to do but because the teachers need to signal to the homes that this is going on and the parents demand it because they want to show interest and the poor child is left with the guilt of not actually being able to do it it's not just guilt I mean they're punished as well right. wow oh, so when they don't do it in the morning, they mm. are punished for not doing it. I mean, the, the teachers justify it by saying, well, they do it in the morning anyway, right? So they try to do it in the morning. So we still have to give it. And sometimes, possibly, they may get a chance to do it um, after, after work. I mean, the older children have a bit more responsibility in terms of all their chores and all their contributions to household economic activities. But the younger children have a little bit more leeway. They have a little bit more time. So the, the primary one, two, three, the kindergarten. So for them, it was quite important to give homework because they had fewer responsibilities at home. And I did observe a parent actually helping one of their children with homework who was in, she was in KG2, I believe at the time. So that, that's kindergarten too. Right. Kindergarten. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Whilst there are some differences in um, the mechanics of the schooling, it doesn't sound hugely um, different from what you might find in other cultures, in other places here in the UK in terms of how we might see homework. There's quite a lot of similarities there. Is that your experience? I think so. I mean, in the literature as well, it's interesting that in the literature, homework is, I don't want to use the term mar marginalized, but the importance from an evidence point of view is reducing in terms of parental involvement, um, as Cassian mentioned earlier, because there is increasing evidence that homework, parental homework involvement is not really related to, to academic achievement. Mm -hmm. And there is increasing evidence that the more subtle elements of parental involvement which are accessible to all parents regardless of education level and occupation so the more subtle elements like aspirations expressing interest and support for schooling um, expressing expectations around schooling expressing values around schooling 
can actually be quite important for children's academic achievement. And for me, this is interesting because, again, this is accessible to, to immigrant parents within this context, to refugee parents, to, to any parent. So there's no barrier to being able to do these things because you can express those, those different forms of uh, involvement in any language and you don't, you know, you don't require English skills. For me, it's promising that the evidence is demonstrating that there are different ways that parents can support their children and involvement is not limited to literacy or numeracy. It's not limited or it's not only for parents who have a certain level of, of literacy or socioeconomic standing or a certain type of occupation. That sort of forms of involvement can be just as powerful as homework involvement or more sort of overt forms of involvement. I, I could talk to you all day. Um, this is so fascinating. But I, I'm just sort of interested in the, the the policy implications of your findings and your research. What do you think they are? I mean, quality of schooling is a big one because parents' actions and parents' practices around schooling, particularly in trying to bring in, say, formal apprenticeships, is a way of hedging their bets around schooling because when they have older siblings or when they see the children of their neighbors who have gone to school, who have done secondary, post-secondary university in some cases, who are sitting at home for years on end, they begin to think, well, what's the point of schooling alone? Um, and actually, a few parents said that you can no longer do schooling alone. So they feel the need to bring in these other forms of learning that will ultimately enable their children to to be independent, to, to have a livelihood, to generate an income that will that will give them independence. So there is that in terms of increasing the quality of schooling, sort of increasing sort of the macroeconomic environment. But these are long term, these are long term challenges. I think the other interesting possibility also is if parents are taking it upon themselves to enroll their children in these informal apprenticeships, how do you manage the quality of these? Inf I mean, I, and I haven't even, we haven't talked about, we could talk about this all day because we haven't even talked about the quality of these informal apprenticeships, but the quality varies as well. So to be able to actually learn an informal apprenticeship to the point where you have adequate skill to be able to generate a livelihood, that, that is also questionable because, you know, the trainers of these um, informal apprenticeships, they vary and their skill set varies. And there were some parents who were advocating for inclusion of um, informal apprenticeship courses within the school environment. And we do have a history, and currently as well in Nigeria, there are home economic courses, but parents want a bit more variety such that, you know, some of these informal apprenticeships that they are trying to um, negotiate outside of the school environment, perhaps if the school begins to offer it, then they can be assured of the skill that the child would actually gain from being involved in these within the school environment. I mean, that's quite complicated and I'm mm -hmm. not necessarily sure it's something that government will act upon, but it does call into question, you know, the, the quality of these informal apprentices, especially in these environments where, where people feel that they do need to bring in these other forms of activities in order to be able to be assured of any sort of livelihood. So how do we bring in these other forms of learning such that children and young people, when they grow up and they are waiting for employment, are able to learn? So it sounds like there, yeah, there is an efficiency problem in, in having such a diverse market. So these parents are engaging in quite a diverse market to edge their bets as much as possible. But in terms of actually how what the child can manage, 
in doing all these things. And, you know, you talk about them also needing to hawk, which is that's selling homemade goods and things, isn't it? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So they're having to hawk. They're having to go to state school. They're having to go to the religious schooling. They're having to do apprenticeships. None of that they have time for not you know to do everything like that to a high quality is going and so it must take them longer or they just don't do it as well and so so one of the policy implications i'm taking is that actually somewhere along the lines you have to enhance one of these to pick up the slack so if you can make state schooling better then parents won't have to edge their bets or you make some of the other options better so that when they do make a decision actually it pays off and it's not just a gamble is that is that a good interpretation Absolutely. I mean, there there is that quality imperative because at the moment, the only avenue for government is through the public schooling um, sector because government is not intervening in the informal apprenticeships. Government is not intervening in the Arabic schooling. So in terms of an intervention or policies or directive that will need to come in in the public schooling. And that is what it what it boils down to, that this quality of schooling will need to be significantly increased and not just the quality of schooling. The outcomes of the school, as I call it, will need to be assured in some way or secured or guaranteed in some way so that those who see those who have been schooled, when they see that their outcomes are actually positive, have more confidence in schooling. But I do agree that, you know, it, it's it's difficult and there are tensions in navigating all these different forms. And there are struggles because they're not the quality of imperative of each of these is, is, is quite weak. They're not able to be efficient to do each of them as well as they should be able to do it. And interestingly, the parents also recognize these. Um, there was one parent who. I I don't remember what we were talking about, but he expressed frustration. I think the child got a poor result or something, and he expressed frustration at the child that was sending you to Arabic schooling, was was sending you to school, was sending you to this, was sending you to that, and you're not able to, to, to perform in any of them. But it was funny that he didn't recognize the irony that the reason why perhaps he the child wasn't able to perform was that there was just too many things. But for him, the provision of the variety was was a measure of quality, if you will. Well, thanks for that, Bacola. That was fascinating talking to you. And I could have talked for many more hours. Good luck with your research. And uh, maybe when, when it's all written up, we could have you back on to, to talk about your final findings. Until then, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you guys. That was great to talk to Pecola about what sounds like a fascinating study. Now, researchers always endeavour into the unknown, but usually the structure of their chosen method, whether that's an interview or a survey or whatever, gives them some sort of certainty to hold on to and to guide them through that research process. But as Bacola's experience revealed, the ethnographer doesn't really have that safety structure. They need to be ready to throw such comforts out the window and to pivot and adapt to the reality of those they're trying to get alongside. One of the things that struck me about Bacola's work is the complexity of the dilemma facing parents within her study. Now, it seems fairly obvious to say that how much people buy into an educational offer is heavily linked to the outcomes of those who receive it. But this directly tethers the demands of childhood to the wider socioeconomic reality of job prospects, etc. The greater the uncertainty in that wider picture, the more parents have to hedge their bets in seeking to provide the best outcomes for their child, 
and thus the more demands and expectations are going to be placed on the child. 